Welcome to Finding Home with Scott Harris, where we take a fresh look at what home really means. New York draws people in to make big visions into reality, and I've guided hundreds of people, just like you, into homes that support their dreams. In each episode, you get to hear their stories. I'm Scott Harris, your host. Hello and welcome to Finding Home with Scott Harris. I am Scott Harris and I am really excited to talk to you and present you some of the conversations that I've been having with amazing people over the last few months. We finally put a lot of these together in a format for our podcast, which we're calling Finding Home. The first one that we're presenting to you is called The Power to Process. How do we process everything that we've gone through in the last year and a half. How do we make sense of scenes of an empty New York? And how do we process as things come back? This is pulled from a recorded Clubhouse conversation that I had a few weeks ago that was very widely ranging and brought together a number of multidisciplinary folks. It was co-hosted by my friend, client, and amazing overall person, Jade Ullman, who works at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is called MAPS. And we got into a whole conversation around psychedelics and what the future is, really as thinking about helping people process all of the crazy things that they've gone through and trauma in general. We also had a wonderful person on the, on the podcast, Alana Siegel. Dr. Alana Siegel is a PhD based in Israel, but who's currently spending time in New York City. And she went into a great level of detail about the trauma that people go through and how people process. That was an amazing part of the conversation. We also had Mark Lubell, who's the current director of the International Center for Photography, which opened its Essex Street location right before the pandemic shutdown. And we got into a really in-depth conversation around the shows that they thought to put on first as soon as people could get back in and all of the images that were being created around the world, the hundreds of thousands of images that were sent to them as part of their first presentation after COVID as the museum was open again. And lastly, we brought in a good friend of mine, an amateur photographer, Dan Rose, who among many other things, traveled all around the city during the quarantine, taking pictures of empty New York. And the question that we asked everybody was, what are people going through? How are people processing what they've been going through? And what does the future look like? We got into an in-depth conversation around psychedelic medicine, therapies around psychedelics, and I hope you love this conversation that we hosted on Clubhouse about four weeks ago. Without further ado, here's Finding Home with Scott Harris. I want to look through, as we talk about how to process everything we've gone through, I want to look through two lenses today. First, I want to think about the power of the camera and the lens of the camera to help us process and live with the images we see. And second, to look at the recent return of, not so recent now, but the recent return of research in psychedelic medicine to help so many of you and so many people deal with trauma. Um, It seems like we've all gone through 
some pretty remarkable times. And we need to find ways to take the challenges that we have and to give us the opportunity to digest what's happened. Um, I thought, and, and I'm really delighted that Dr. Alana Siegel was able to join us today to weigh in on trauma and what we've gone through. Um, she's a, I, I don't want to give away her bio. Alana, do you want to uh, tell people about yourself and then talk about um, your, your take on what's been going on lately? Sure, I'm happy to. So I'm a trauma psychologist and I began my focus on the topic more than 15 years ago. Today I'm a psychologist in private clinical practice and I'm also an instructor at Tel Aviv University in Israel, um, which is unfortunately a living laboratory of stress and trauma. And over the past 15 years, I've been exploring the effects of trauma, both at the micro and the macro level with different populations in different settings, both clinical and academic. But I have to tell you, even with all these years of studying and thinking and talking about trauma, nothing, and I mean nothing, could have prepared me or really any of us for the repercussions of the mass of a mass trauma of a pandemic. So I thought that just to start off, I'd talk a little bit about what I've been seeing in my own clinical practice and also what I've gleaned from the research literature on this topic. And then I turn over to, you know, okay, so that this is the trauma that we've seen. What can we do to care for ourselves, especially in the days that lie ahead? Um, and I was really thinking about, you know, COVID in, in terms of New York City. First, as you said in your introduction, it was one of the earliest epicenters of the virus in the United States. And I think because of the crowded nature of the city, it really exploded. Um, and I would, you know, just to talk a bit about trauma in New York City, I would, I was thinking I'm a native New Yorker myself, born and raised, and something that I love so much about New York is how diverse it is. But just as New York City is diverse, so too can the trauma and stress responses be diverse. And um, something that is emotionally heartbreaking but intellectually fascinating about the COVID experience is how every single person in the city, in our country, in the whole world, is really confronted by their own matrix of variables about what uniquely defines their stress in this pandemic. And that can range from anything from unemployment and real fears about putting food on the table and paying one's rent and meeting one's bills and not sinking into debt. You know, Scott, you mentioned in your introduction about um, home as a safe environment. But unfortunately for a lot of people in this pandemic, home has very much not been a safe environment. There have been a lot of studies showing a spike in domestic violence and child abuse because the place that you've always been trying to escape is suddenly the place where you need to be sheltering. Um, there's a lot of fear for self and also for loved ones, whether they're frontline workers or in jobs where they have to be interacting with people all the time. So much so that for some people, this fear of the disease and the contagion of it has resulted in something called coronaphobia, um, which is this excessive fear of contracting the coronavirus. And it can lead to high levels of stress about personal and occupational loss and an increase in safety-seeking behaviors like hand-washing or avoidance of public places. So I personally know a bunch of people that have barely left their home in the past year out of fear of contagion. I think really all of us can talk about the stress of balancing home and work from the same space while also combating isolation. And then layered on top of all of this as we navigate the pandemic are all these issues that are surfacing pertaining to race, 
politically there have been a lot of events such as what happened at the capitol a couple of months ago which has been intensely triggering for a lot of people separation from loved one overseas when will i see you know i I was just coming to new york for a short stay and all of a sudden i don't know when i'll see my family again um and for all of us you know our daily life has been completely upended in what has been a black swan event um and i think that above that we're at the base of it we're all really social beings um and suddenly interacting with other people has really become this huge threat whether socially, sexually, professionally, medically, all of a sudden it's scary to go to the dentist. It's scary to go out on a date. And that isolation is safer, but an isolation can also have its own really significant repercussions. Um, I think that also for some of us, there is the, what psychologists term as a caregiving burden, the strain or load borne by a person who cares for someone who's ill, such as an elderly family member, maybe also small children. Um, so just the, the layers are, it's layers upon layers. And this isn't even a you know definitive list of all the traumas we've experienced, just a small sample. But I think that for all of us, um, something that I really talk about a lot with, with my patients, because I've certainly seen an uptick in trauma cases in my own practice during this time, is the difference between an acute versus a chronic stress. So an acute stress is something, for example, like a car accident, right? You were on the road, your car got hit, and the events happened between 5.06 p.m. and 5.09 p.m., and then the accident finished. But a chronic stress is something ongoing. You don't necessarily know how it will play out. So disease can be a chronic stress, like HIV or diabetes, right? Um, And in this case, the coronavirus, the pandemic, is certainly a chronic stress. Yes, we're all vaccinated, but when is this really going to end? When will we be able to take the masks off and resume life as we knew it beforehand? And I think that the chronic stress can really, really weigh on us and have a corrosive effect over time, which leads me to another term that I think is important to discuss, which which is ambiguity. It's this weight on our shoulders. When will this end? When will when will this be over? When can I resume seeing my family members? When can I go out to a restaurant or back to a movie? You know, and so, okay, so I've laid out all the traumas that we've been through, but now let's talk about how do we get back on the horse? How do we continue onwards? And I would say that it's super important, even if it's virtually, to find ways to connect with others and to keep your life moving forward, even if it's virtually. I'm, of course, my second point is I'm very much a proponent of therapy. I am a therapist. I teach students about therapy. I have been in therapy. I've seen the incredible work that one can do with a therapist. And I think that taking this time, whether via telehealth or if you're in a place where you can see someone in person, it can really be invaluable. I think that also taking prioritizing one's self-care such a, which is a conscious act that one takes in order to promote their own physical, mental, and emotional health is super important. Sleep, having regular balanced meals, limiting substances, so the alcohol or marijuana or whatever sub, nicotine might feel very comforting in the moment, but over time it can really make you feel um, unwell or out of shape. I think that it's important to limit screen time, so turn that TV off and try to read a book create a schedule for yourself, even if things seem so in flux. I can't even begin to stress the importance of exercising, 
go out for that walk, do that yoga class in your living room, whatever it is you need to do to get that heart rate up. Um, and also, you know, even if you're in isolation, Esther Perel certainly talks about this mating in captivity, but this is a great opportunity to date your partner and to enjoy one another. I also think that creating a music playlist that's comforting. I actually have a variety of patients that love coloring books because it's hard to focus on anything else at hand when you're just thinking about drawing in between the lines, turning to prayer or some sort of yoga or meditative practice. Um, and I think that also limiting media exposure because it can be super, I've been on a media fast for the past two weeks just because it's so draining to see yet again what's happening in the media. And I think for a lot of people, there's been a strong denial in play. People, I've heard people say, I can't, I can't believe this is still happening. I can't believe we're living in this pandemic. The truth is we're, in a new, we're still in adjusting to this new normal. We are getting vaccinated. We still don't know what's ahead. But how is it that we can exist in the present once again? And my last point before we turn back over to the other speakers is even in this very, very dark time, this very dark hour for myself, for all of us, um, it's to reframe what you're going through for the positive as much as possible. Even if it's organizing your home, developing a new hobby. I love to watch stand-up comedians on YouTube focus on the humor, something that makes you laugh. And also to use this pandemic as a positive opportunity to reflect on our own lives. And so this can be a really great time to assess our wants, our needs, our goals, and going forward. And finally, I think that even as we start to try to recover from this, it's so important to remind ourselves that this is temporary. We don't know when it'll end, but it is not the first pandemic in history. And all pandemics before us have come to an end. This one will also. So um, thank you. I don't know if I take questions now or later, but I certainly have have a lot of thoughts about trauma and the pandemic in New York City. Um, and I look forward to hearing feedback from the audience um, as this talk continues. Alana, thank you so much. Uh, really, you really did a wonderful job of setting the table. Um, Jade, how would, how would we uh, organize the, uh, if people have any questions, but just um, people would raise hands, yes? Yeah, I think it makes sense to kind of make sure we get all the voices in. Perfect. And Great. Okay, good. Well, I think it's a it's a wonderful uh, segue to take on yet another uh, thing that people have done and another way that people process what we've seen, which is through visual arts and through photography. I think we're really lucky to have Mark Lubell here, um, the director of the ICP, as Jade introduced early when we opened up the room. Just to just to reset the room, we've been talking about both photography and also we're going to be talking a little later about psychedelics and playing a role in helping us process what we've seen. So we're going to focus now. Um, Mark, if you want to unmute yourself, I'd love to have, have some questions for you and, and certainly let you, uh, maybe you want to give yourself a, a little more introduction a little, so people know who you are. Okay. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you very much for inviting me and thank you, Jade, as well. It's a great honor to talk to you and to your audience tonight. Um, so my name is Mark Rubel. I'm the executive director of the International Center of Photography. Um, this is a New York-based institution um, established in 1974 by Cornell Kappa. And Cornell Kappa was a very good photographer in his own right, but he was also uh, the brother of famous Robert Kappa, uh, the war correspondent that took pictures uh, at the Spanish Civil War and the, one of the only photographers that took pictures during D-Day. Um, that many people remember. 
But uh, Cornell Kappa started ICP uh, really as a, a mecca for photography. Um, he bought a building on Fifth Avenue and really gave photography a space in the art world um, when when photography was was considered sort of second class citizen in the art world. Uh, so having its own building on Fifth Avenue on Museum Mile was a was a milestone for photography, um, and uh, the organization has has flourished ever since. And as Jade had mentioned, uh, ICB has had some uh, iterations through its history. First, starting out at ninety fourth and Fifth Avenue. Then it moved to Midtown, Forty uh, Third and Sixth Avenue, um, and now uh, we've built a new building down on the Lower East Side, on Essex Seventy Nine Essex Street. Uh, it's part of the Essex Crossing um, development, um, but it's a standalone building, um, and it has a museum and as well as a school. Um, so I would like to invite uh, you, Scott and Jade, and your entire audience to please uh, come down and, and see our new facility. Um, but we opened uh, a year ago, and we opened uh, the end of January, and then <laughs> timing is everything. Uh, seven weeks later, uh, we had to shut down. Um, so after so much effort and energy to sort of build a new building and open a building, uh, then to be shut down was quite devastating. But I uh, am a born and raised in New York as well. Um, and uh, I have to say that New York is an amazing place. Uh, it's always amazing when either the Yankees win the World Series or uh, a terrible thing happens. <laughs> so as Scott alluded to 9-11, Sandy, uh, you really see some of the best of, of, uh, of this city when, when, when a crisis happens. And so we just built a building, which was all about people coming together, uh, a center for deliberation about uh, big issues in the world that happen today through image makers. Um, and then we had to shut down. So what do you do? So we shut down on, on the, uh, New York City, shut all museums and schools on the 14th of March. And on March 20th, we, we had a call out to action asking people to send in their photographs of this pandemic. Um, and since we are international, and I'm an international audience, we started receiving images immediately from all over the world. And what is amazing to see, um, as the doctor was mentioning, you know, how we are social uh, beings and how do we communicate with one another when that is shut off. It was amazing to see the kind of images that came in because they were the same images all over the world. And this is how the images started. First, there were pictures of people wearing masks and gloves. And that was very strange. So people were sending those pictures in. And then pictures changed from people wearing masks and gloves to empty streets, empty streets in London and in Berlin and Moscow and China and, uh, and New York City. Very strange to see completely empty streets. And then the imagery changed to interiors people taking pictures of of their um, lockdowns in the room in their their routines and this what really was a form of communication to each other um and some of you remember those great scenes of the italians on the balcony singing uh, as a way to sort of form community well um through icp we really did form a community and and, and we got uh, at least over a hundred thousand images and, and then uh, George Floyd uh, was murdered. 
and you went from isolation images to now people out on the streets protesting in great masses and it was like this huge buildup and it was amazing to kind of see the imagery change from you know interior isolation shots to hundreds and thousands of people out on the street protesting uh, and then we kept this exhibition up and as pictures came in we just kept on adding them to the walls and we went all the way up until the election which also was another kind of trigger point um, but I think that this was a way that ICP could play a role in this pandemic and really sort of give voice during this during this moment. Um, and then we had an exhibition. We opened, we reopened October 1st, and we had this exhibition all the way until the end of the year. Um, and now all of those images are part of the ICP um, archive. And I'm sure that it will be very interesting to revisit in five years or 10 years from now to remember this, this uh, historic moment. Great. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, so I, I wanted to keep it focused on New York and just and get your view. You know, what do you think what do you think New York's role is to play as as a center for art and expression? I mean, what do you see? Uh, how do you see us coming back and going, you know, going forward as a cultural hub? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because what makes New York New York and there could be many other places that people can go uh, in the world. And um, in North Carolina, there's a you know, big sort of banking community. But what makes New York and the layers um, so special is, is the cultural offerings um, and the diversity of offerings um, in the city. So it has been incredibly difficult for cultural institutions, big and small, mostly small. Uh, the big ones have very big endowments. They got hit very hard because their their overhead is huge, but they're going to be okay. But it is the the medium size and the small size institutions that are that are really um, so dependent on uh, visitors um, and supporters. And when all of that shuts down, it has been difficult. But those that have been able to hang on, I think that the city come this uh, fall when more and more people are vaccinated and we hope that things begin to return i think that there's going to be such a pent-up demand uh, for people to come back and to really engage in the cultural offerings that that makes new york city what it is it has been a very difficult year but i but i think that there, there is so much invested in new york city and i i think that um, people are really going to be quite excited to sort of come back and return to their lives and return to the, the diverse cultural offerings that New York offers. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, I mean, it's it. do you hear from actual, from, from artists who are saying, look, you know, the rents are going to be cheaper. I'm going to, I've been in Philadelphia maybe, and now I'm, I'm ready to come back because I can afford to be here again. Have you heard those kinds of stories? Because I, I, I'm definitely hearing from the real estate side, I hear people are, a lot of people are excited to be back and it, it feels like a, it's a new opportunity for people in that way. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, New York has been so expensive for so long that uh, this has been a little bit of a resetting and has given a lot of opportunity. And I and I have heard exactly that, that uh, people are thought that uh, New York was out of range and now is, is coming back. And I, and I have to say that what I really have appreciated is just the creativity that the restaurant industry has figured out um, by having sort of outdoor dining. And I think 
that that is really going to change the fabric of this city that I think people are really enjoying eating outside and I think they're going to want to continue to eat outside. And I think that um, with a crisis always comes new opportunities and I think there has been new opportunities to sort of rethink uh, this city and you know the uh, to make it affordable for artists to sort of come back and live in the city. Uh, I think that's why uh, people making um, lots of money want to live in a city. They want to live in a city where there is that kind of diversity and, and creativity back um, uh, uh, street by street. And I, I'm definitely seeing that. Great. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much for, for being being a part of this. I don't want to... Jade, did you have any, any questions that you wanted to ask Mark? I, I know I uh, we talked a little bit about it before, but just want to make sure I don't leave you out there. Well, Mark, I'd like to ask you one very quick personal-ish question, if you're okay with that. Sure. So I have met your older brother, who I think is amazing, and I was just wondering, you've had such an amazing, successful career, and wonder if you could say something about something that you've learned from your older brother, Peter. Uh, well, you know my brother well, and uh, uh, my brother Peter is always optimistic and also incredibly stubborn. <laughs> and I think those are two characteristics uh, that the city always um, continues to uh, portray. Um, uh, a grittiness and a stubbornness of, um, of continuing forward. And also, as, as Scott was alluding to, you know, rebirth. Um, and the city is constantly re revitalizing itself. And as difficult as it was to see many restaurants and, and places not make it, this is allowing, I think, a you know a new generation of, of people to come in and, and, and start up the, the next uh, restaurant or the next store, um, maybe in a slightly different way. And that's how the city will continue to regenerate. Um, and that's what I've learned from my, my older brother. <laughs> Great. And also, Mark, what are some ways that we can support ICP? It's an amazing institution. Everyone should go check it out. And I love that it's been open during the pandemic. Can you just say other ways that we can support the museum? Oh, well, thank you for that, Jay. Well, yes, if everyone could please um, send $10 million to ICP. Okay. I'd be, I'd be very uh, <laughs> grateful. No, I think that the, the best um, support is to, to please come. And if you're in, in the tri-state area, to please come. Uh, and see the uh, exhibitions that we have up now. We are open uh, still in pandemic uh, scheduling, so we're open um, Thursday through Sunday, um, 11 to uh, 7 o'clock. Um, so I just urge people to come. And, and uh, we have, obviously, uh, COVID um, standards, so we only allow 25%. It's a new building, so, Scott, you'll appreciate the HVAC is incredible. Um, and so, Lucky. Uh, in fact, one of the first questions that I had during the pandemic was not to the uh, curators, but to the architect. And I immediately asked, I said, you know, we should, I guess we'll have to start to think about doing different kinds of shows. And um, is our space safe? And she said, oh, no, this, this building is designed <laughs> for the pandemic because it's got double height space. Uh, the airflow is excellent. So um, I, I, I don't want to let anyone go to, to our space if they're not feeling comfortable. But if they are feeling comfortable, uh, please come and, um, and come to ICP. And what's the current and next show? Or what's, can we tell us a little bit what you're currently showing? Uh, the current show is a show curated by the photographer Paul Graham. And it's called But Still It Turns, 
which is actually a quote from Galileo. Um, and it's featuring nine different photographers as they traversed through America many years ago. Uh, so it's not in the last two or three years, but, you know, four years ago. Um, and it's a real look at this country um, through through several different sort of visual authors. Um, it's, a, it's a terrific exhibition. It was written up in the Times and Wall Street Journal, got great reviews. Uh, it's a wonderful show, and uh, and because it's nine different photographers, uh, each is sort of like nine mini exhibitions. Awesome! Thank you so much, Mark, for being with us today. And Scott, were we going to have Daniel share next? Is it yes? Photography or yes. Speaking of visual authors, uh, my good friend Daniel Rose um, is a photographer himself, and I, I was excited that he was willing to share, come on stage, and and share his own experience of waking up into quarantine New York and uh, the photo book that he's working on. So Daniel, if you're there, um, thanks for being so patient and I'd love to hear your story and, um, and what you're working on. So first of all, thank you, Scott. And thank you, Jade, for, for having me. Um, certainly a hard act to follow up with these great stories and uh, from Dr. Siegel. And I'd, I'd like to say, I think there are about 30 or 40 people I'd like her to talk to. And, and Mark, and, and, I, and I can't wait to go see, uh, walk down to ICP myself. Um, I've actually walked by it, and, and I've never uh, stopped by there. I didn't realize it was open during the pandemic. So, yeah, so as, as Scott mentioned, I, I sort of woke up during the pandemic. The pandemic. I, I came home from work on Friday, March 13th ominous day and and i and the news had started to hit that uh, there was there was a patient you know, i guess we sort of, sort of call him patient zero although he wasn't in new rochelle and and it was all over the news that this, this strange virus had hit our shores and i'm a big fan of the media in terms of taking into media uh, i used to at least and and i remember sars and, and the bird flu and so on and and, and watching with anticipation and, and anxiety and, and thankfully none of those things had hit us and then finally, you know, here, here this pandemic or this virus hit us on the shores, uh, hit our shores. And I came home and, and I had dinner that night. And Saturday morning, I felt unwell and uh, started as cold. And I didn't have a sore throat. I didn't have a cough, which were the telltale signs. So I called my doctor Sunday as I, I wasn't feeling that great come Sunday. And, and he told me, no sore throat, no issues breathing. It's probably just a cold. Uh, you're fine. Just don't go out. And then come Monday, I fell off. A, I, I felt a little bit better at the beginning of the day, and then I fell off a cliff. And I didn't get out of bed for the next 10 days. Um, I dealt with fever. I dealt with a lot. Uh, the doctor still told me it was the flu. I couldn't go in for a test. As you remember, there were very few tests at the time. And because I didn't have the breathing or sore throat or any of those issues, the uh, respiratory issues, they assumed that it was the flu. Anyway, t 10 days later, I, I woke up and I was weak, but I decided I, I needed to, to get out. I needed to go for a walk. And I was struck immediately by the, the lack of noise, the lack of cars, the lack of people. And the contrast with, with that past Friday, the, you know, 10 days earlier, 12 days earlier, and as I walked the streets, I, I'd always been an avid photographer, mostly with my iPhone, just sort of capturing the world that, that, I, that I see. I 
decided to start walking the streets. Um, I actually, as Dr. Siegel said, it, it was really more therapeutic than anything else. Because I, I just couldn't stay in the house. I needed to exercise. The gym was closed. And I figured, what, what a better way. Spring was coming to just go and explore the city. I started taking these pictures. And, and by the way, just, to, just as an aside, and three months later, I tested for antibodies. And, and yes, I, I did have... I was hit with, with COVID. But but anyway, as I was walking and taking these pictures, I started posting them on Instagram, and, and Scott was nice enough to point out that, that he liked them a lot and, and wanted me to, to push to, to, to see a greater audience and get a greater audience. And uh, I tried to do that and and ended up that some, some, a bunch of my pictures ended up on, on a magazine, um, uh, on a cover, actually, a commentary magazine. It's not a huge readership but still I felt flattered that, uh, that they were willing to, to put my my pictures on the cover but but what really struck me is as I was posting mostly on Instagram the, the comments from the people uh, from around the world and, and and it just it struck them because so many people who had been to New York tourists and they felt they felt nostalgic for the city and they gave them a yearning to come back and and it also I think that it really struck people because they'd never seen this, the city so bare. And it's kind of like Mark was saying, all these pictures of empty streets. And it really resonates with people. You know, it's, it's almost like that movie 28 Days, I think it's called, the, the one in, in the guy wakes up and it's like a zombie apocalypse in London and the streets are empty. And and you sort of feel like that and you, you just you wonder where did everyone go? Now, a lot of people left, but a lot of people were in their apartments. And as Mark said, a lot of people then continued with their... Um, photography by, by taking pictures inside. But, but I continued taking pictures of the city from, from the Heights all the way to Brooklyn. Um, and because there's, there's so much richness to the architecture, but each street seems to tell a story and, and, and each person sees a different story in each one of these pictures. Uh, so it's, it's not that my pictures are better than anybody else's, but they represent something and, and it's accidental. They represent something to the, to the viewer. And, and to that end, and, and thanks to Scott for introducing me to uh, to, to a person who's become a, a really good friend at working on, on a book. And, it, and it's a book about the stillness of the city. We're calling it Still New York City. And, and it's really a, mm. just to, to try to, to show the best of the city, you know, and, and to cut away the noise. And, and as, as Dr. Siegel said, I, I've sort of stopped with the media because it just is too stressful try to bring out the best, try to be positive about our city and, and about what it means to not just us, but to the world. And, and what I realize is, you know, New York is not, people often say, why isn't New York the capital of the U.S.? And it's the biggest city, it's the most famous city. But I realize now it, 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 it's a greater role. It's really the capital of the world. And I'm not just talking about the U.N., but every tourist who seems to come here doesn't feel like, they, they, they feel like they're, uh, they, they can find somebody who they find their language, we have hundreds of languages spoken here, they find somebody or something that, that resembles you know, from their own culture. And, and I think that that's, that's what's so important. You know, a lot of times people say, well, he's not a true New Yorker. But, but what's a true New Yorker? I was born in, in Europe. I moved here in 90, uh, in New York, to New York in 96. I feel that I'm a true New Yorker, and I feel somebody who comes here for five days can become a true New Yorker. Because that's what a true New Yorker is. They're, they're a worldly person. That it, it's a cultural melting pot. And um, 
and anyway, so that that's sort of what I'm trying to do. And, and it's like Mark said, what we, the city needs, they need the people back. We need to fill the streets back up with the people to come back alive. And the city is gone, and everybody says the city's dead, the city's dead. The city's been dead a hundred times, and it always comes back to life, and it will again. Daniel, where are you from originally? Uh, from from Belgium. Oh, if I could jump in, uh, Jade, I just, I'd like to add what Daniel said because uh, since you know my brother, our mother uh, would always find someone in the supermarket <laughs> and uh, the next thing you know at dinner, that person was at the dinner table um, because the city is just so international with so many people. And what Daniel said is what my mother described New Yorkers and I always tell people, you don't have to be born and raised in New York to be a New Yorker. You just have to get New York. And Daniel said it press, like someone could come into the city and be here for two days. If they get the city, if they understand it, in my opinion, they're a New Yorker. And I think that's what, that is the, the, the gravitational pull to this city is that people that really, they under, when they're here, they really feel that they're, they're at their home. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, it's great. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Dan, good luck getting the book uh, up and running. Really excited to see where that goes. And um, and thank you so much for telling that story. I mean, it's the images that you've been sharing with the world have been absolutely beautiful. And uh, you continue to, wherever you go, you, you find uh, beautiful things to shoot. So thank you. So I wanted to uh, take the turn here from photography into, um, into the heart of uh, our second lens here that we're looking uh, at. Uh, and how people are dealing with all the craziness that's in the world right now, which is um, through psychedelic medicine. So, Jade, I, I want to turn the turn the moderator ship over to you for a second and make sure that we're. Um, am I going to be talking to Victoria? Yeah, I'm just going to say a quick and then pass it to Victoria. Um, it's great that we're here with you, Dr. Alana, because. Um, Israel is one of the places that MAPS is working. Um, they've already approved what's called compassionate use. So we'll be seeing MDMA therapy actually starting first in Israel. And uh, MAPS is doing um, work with MDMA-assisted therapy for treating PTSD. We're phase three clinical trials. And we have two sites in New York. One was at the Assemblage. Unfortunately, that building has closed down. There were three great buildings. And then we have one at NYU. And we have Victoria here who's going to talk to us more about what, what what's the future of DCRAM. And maybe you could talk more. And, to, and as a way of introduction, Victoria just finished her bar exam and so has been an advocate around psychedelic work in cannabis. And so I'll pass it to you, Victoria, to kind of give us what is the lens of what we're going to be seeing in the future here in New York and beyond. Yeah, sure. Thank you uh, for having me, Jade, and everyone up here. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to sort of a different lens that I'm not usually getting to learn about. So really grateful. And um, yeah, as Jade said, I'm a lawyer soon and a longtime cannabis patient and lover of psychedelics. And I've had my hands into some exciting things happening in New York around decriminalization. Um, but I guess another thing that is worth bringing in too is that the marijuana regulation um, and tax act just got signed, I guess, last week. So now possession of three ounces of cannabis is legal. Uh, there's a lot of gray area around, you know, what's legal and not legal and licensing and a lot more to talk about on that front. But 
it is legal, so that's exciting. And then there's a lot of efforts at the city level and at the state level. Groups like Brooklyn Psychedelic Society, the Psychedelic Sisterhood, um, Decriminalized Nature NYC, which is the city chapter, which I've been uh, helping their efforts at drafting legislation, similar, you know, city council ordinances that you've seen on the West Coast in Northern California, and also on the East Coast up in Massachusetts, there's been three localities that have decriminalized uh, psychedelics, plant medicine, and the model of decrim nature really focuses on what's called grow, gather, gift model, and really community-based healing, and the language for New York specifically, we really wanted to focus on just the collective trauma that this city experienced during the war on drugs, one of the worst places in the country in terms of uh, disproportionate arrests and criminalization for drug possession. And so really thinking about how these substances can be a part of community-based healing and community-based cultivation and just protecting people's rights to cultivate and access these medicines. And happy to answer their questions, but I'm uh, mindful of the time as well. Victoria, I, I did want to ask you a question. This is Scott again. Hi, everybody. I'm just excited to have everybody here. We've been talking about New York specifically. Um, Victoria, how New York is known pretty well as a progressive state. How does it really rate in terms of being there uh, on the on the forefront of research and, and decriminalization? It's already legalized marijuana now, but you know psychedelics are a different animal altogether. Uh, how how do you see New York standing versus other states? I think that's a good question, and this is Victoria speaking again. And you know, I think it's interesting on the research front. So, like, if you do like a Google of New York research, there's like the NYU just got a big amount of money to develop a research center. I think there's a Mount Sinai research center in development. There has been research happening at NYU for a period of time. Um, so there is a lot on the research front, which is really exciting. I think there's just a lot of people here and hospitals here and trauma here. So a lot of research to be done. Um, and then on the culture side, as I was mentioning, there's a lot of like groups and there have been for a long period of time. And um, like Horizons, big conferences that have taken place in New York. I mean, there really is a culture in New York amongst um, activists and professionals and all kind, you know, everyone who's just coming together to form community. I would say legislatively, I mean, state-wise, it's not really... I mean, I don't think it's that progressive. I mean, you know, when we, let's just be real. I mean, we got a pretty decent marijuana bill, pretty decent. There are some languages around social justice in there. There is home grow, which is really exciting. And the localities can't ban home grow, which is really important. But I mean, part of the reason that it was signed and passed the way it was when it did is because, you know, the governor was in trouble around some other things and wanted to have a distraction. I'm not confident that that version would have passed if he uh, wasn't looking for you know, kind of something else to be able to to brag about. Unfortunately, like I wish that wasn't the case. I think, you know, if anyone takes the time to watch some of these legislative sessions in Albany, you just, there's a huge divide between people in the city and, and upstate and just what's important to them, how they view the economy, how they view issues of race and justice. So I, I, I think it's an interesting state because it has so much separation. Um, it sort of mirrors like, the rural city divide that is nationally felt, but some states don't have just quite as much in one state. And 
I mean, if you look at Massachusetts, I, I just think that we have some neighbors to the north that are not that are more on the forefront than, than we are. And part of the work of Decrim Nature, NYC, at least I can speak for, is, you know, putting pressure on city council to say, like, we want to be as progressive as we say that we are. And we want to decriminalize people that are doing things that are helping them heal after this horrible trauma that we've all experienced that's just been escalated um, during this pandemic. So I think I, I, I have hope maybe we could be more progressive, but... There's there's two sides to this. I think we probably could have, if we were really progressive, we could have passed the kind of bill that we passed this year, like a few years ago when it was first introduced. But we weren't that progressive then, and I respect that a lot of act- activists felt like we should fight for a better bill, and I think that was worth it. But you know, Illinois did pass that bill a few years ago that was really progressive then. So just you asked. So, but I, I have to claim too. I'm not a native New Yorker. I've lived here for five years. I've loved being here. I appreciate the idea that anyone can be a New Yorker, and I feel akin to this city. But um, I kind of look at drug policy on a more national scale. Right. So, so Victoria, thanks again. So, in your view, the research that's happening that Maps is 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 a part of, and it's happening at other at, at universities, NYU, Johns Hopkins, and so forth. You think that's going to be more a bigger driver than any progressive politics in New York State or any other state for that matter? Is that is that kind of how you see it? I definitely think that research helps convince people that have other, you know, like, what about the kids and what about these drugs are dangerous? And I mean, research helps like that's the maps. Maps has done such amazing work because it's really opened the door for people all over the country to be able to say, look, here's science in a language that, you know, might speak to some of these legislators. And this really shows that this helps people. And like, I mean, I think the thing that's really going to push it, I have to say, I think is going to be the money. Um, And so there are definitely uh, groups in New York that are trying to say, look like mental health cost wise how much money are we spending and how much less money could we be spending investing in psychedelic medicine so i think unfortunately just like a lot of things in this country money will ultimately drive and i think part of the reason we passed marijuana in this state is also tax revenue you know a deficit as a result of this pandemic so i think the eagerness to try and maybe be on the cutting edge will help i I want to be optimistic. I'm I'm trying to push forward as quickly as we can in New York any kind of decrim or psychedelics, but there's a, you know, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of potential money and and so that can complicate things, unfortunately. Do you think that the I call it like a diaspora of people leaving New York City per se and going upstate, do you think that that plays even the tiniest role in in helping upstate become a little bit more open-minded to what's happening here? join the police force up there and join the town councils and join the community boards, then sure. But I think that the people that you're really having to convince in these localities um, are not the people that are in that diaspora. But I, I mean, I do think, right, like people power, let's organize and as many people and hopefully, you know, anyone in this room, go check out Decrim Nature NYC and you'll hopefully be hearing more and more about it. And there is like this national momentum. So um, it's, it's just a matter of leveraging it, I guess. And uh the short answer to that question is I don't know if that makes the difference. Uh, this is Jade speaking. I just want to say that the Horizons Conference in New York City will be happening actually in person this year, which is very exciting at the New York Academy of Medicine. Um, it's going to be the first couple of days in December, so it's a great conference for those that are interested in the research. It's very science-focused. Um, and then, Dr. Alana, I don't know how long you can stay, but we wanted to kind of hold space for uh, an hour, but I know we have a musical guest and a couple more voices. Do you have to uh, take off by a certain time? 
No, I'm, I'm totally here with you as long as this is. So I'm happy to take any questions the audience might have. Okay, so um, maybe Scott will do one question and then my thought is we'll do the close and then we'll invite Linda to share as well at the, at the end after our, our amazing uh, singer who's here, LaTanya. I'll pass it back to you, Scott. Great. Um, so if, if there are any questions um, uh, for for Dr. Alana or, you know, for anyone of the panelists, please um, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll bring you up on stage. I think we have Elise here. Would you like to ask a question or share something, Elise? No, I'm here to just be support and um, I can't wait to hear Latanya sing. Great. I'm glad to hear Elise. Well, I mean, if we're doing it that way, maybe we'll invite Linda. Would you like to invite, I invited Linda up here who's been doing a wonderful work. We're kind of transitioning, I think, between we started on, um, the lens and all that. And I think that the additional final close here is really about creativity. And um, I think that one of the things that we were talking about as we prepared for today is that creativity is a wonderful healing thing. And I loved how Dr. Alana talked about taking walks and all these different things. Um, but unless there are any questions, we will invite Linda to share about yourself and what you're doing in New York City. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, we talked about all the things that make us uh, get through this pandemic. And in, I run something called the Singing Experience, and I'm very involved in the world of music. I'm also president of the American Popular Song Society that I've been able to keep going through Zoom. But the Singing Experience in March of 2020, my workshops uh, closed, coaching finished, uh, acts were done, all the clubs had closed. So... Uh, I have been using for the last four decades music and song as a vehicle for people to get confidence to change their lives and through my workshops the singing experience and through all this pandemic we've kept music and song going on some levels and some of the clubs now like Don't Tell Mama, West Bank, some of them are opening, I'm very involved in theater and it's been it's, it's not like the New York I know, not to have theater, not to have concerts, not to have clubs. And we just hope that it will come back somehow. Well, let's 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 make it come back right now. <laughs> and I'm sort of interested to hear Latanya sing. At the American Popular Song Society, once a month I have a Zoom meeting, the second Saturday of every month from 12 to 2. We celebrate a jazz month. This month, we had Danny Bonker. I have a songwriter showcase coming up in May. So in my world, we've tried to keep as much as possible. Not We don't have singing workshops because I really don't like a lot of it on Zoom. You cannot have an accompanist in another room while you're singing uh, because there's a delay. So there's a lot of problems with having musical workshops on Zoom. So I'll just wait till the clubs come back. And uh, I, I started this in 1977. So what is a year or two to uh, take a break and come back even stronger than ever? I've had over 10,000 graduates. So I, even in this room, I have a few graduates of the singing experience. So hi and welcome. Thanks so much for listening to Finding Home with Scott Harris. If you'd like to be in touch with any of our guests, you can connect with Dr. Alana Siegel at D-R-A-L-A-N-A-Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L at Gmail. You can be in touch with Mark Lubell by Googling him or finding him on LinkedIn at M-A-R-K-L-U-B-E-L-L. -L. 
If you'd like to be in touch with Jade Ullman, you can find her readily at her personal Instagram, which is Jade Maps, or if you're on Clubhouse, she's all over the place. And if you'd like to be in touch with Daniel Rose, you can find him at Dr. Broadway, DR Broadway, which is Dan Rose Broadway, and he's right there on Instagram. Again, I'm Scott Harris, your host, and this has been Finding Home with Scott Harris. If you want to be in touch with me, you can find me at Harris Residential Team at Instagram and direct message me there. Thanks so much.